Amen and amen. Thank you, Pastor Wesley, and good morning. I hope you all have had a great July 4th weekend and had some time to share with one another and spend time as a family just celebrating the, the freedoms that we have. Uh, Pastor Jimbo, of course, is taking some vacation time to spend with his family, and they're out and about traveling. And uh, So pray for them, for Jimbo and Audrea and the kids, as they have time to kind of refresh and to recharge and to... Uh, just have a time to invest in one another as a family. Uh, so pray for them as they travel and, and have that time together. And uh, I hope you're enjoying your time together as a family this weekend. And uh, I hope you've had a time just to take a moment to reflect upon the freedom that we have to enjoy here as citizens of the United States. Uh, this country is perhaps one of the greatest ever in the history of the world in the fact that we have freedoms that most people in the history of the world may have not had. Um, and so we can reflect upon that, and we can uh, be thankful to the Lord for all the freedoms that we can enjoy as citizens of the United States, namely just the fact that we can worship here together and not have to worry about the government busting down the door and hauling us off. Now, there's a lot of countries where they just can't do that. And so we can sit here and we can open the Word of God and worship together and sing together and not have to worry about any type of oppression coming in at this time. And so we can be thankful for that. And as we consider our status as American citizens and the freedoms that we enjoy as an American citizen, uh, we also realize that we are a citizen of a greater country, a greater kingdom, and that's the kingdom of God. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have enormous freedom, freedom that we just sang about and Pastor Wesley just talked about, and we can be thankful for that as well. So don't allow this weekend to go by and not remember our citizens in the greater kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And really, that's kind of what the book of James has been all about, right? It's expressing our freedom and what faith, our faith means to us as kingdoms uh, or as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so we've been walking through this practical book of James, understanding what it's like to live out our faith, what it's like to, to walk through this Christian faith. We come to faith and knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, and he enters our life. What does that look like in practical ways? And James has been walking us through that here in the last several chapters, and we're going to be talking about that again here as we dig into the end of chapter 4. And we've talked about all sorts of things in James so far, right? Uh, we've talked about the power of the tongue. We've talked about having humility, and we're going to talk more about that this morning, too. We've talked about uh, outworking our salvation in very practical, everyday ways, and, and what that looks like all throughout our lives. And it's just this, this idea of the kingdom of heaven being outpoured into our lives here on a day-by-day -day basis. Uh, one of the greatest analogies that I've heard uh, in regards to the local church is uh, basically comparing it to an embassy or an outpost. So if you think about uh, an embassy in uh, the United States embassy in like France or China or Japan or any part of the, the world, uh, the embassy basically represents the host country's interests, right? So the U.S. embassy in China is constantly concerned with what uh, American interests are in that country. Well, the church, the local church is just like that. Uh, we represent the kingdom of God to the community around us, and we have the interest of God's kingdom on the forefront of our mind. And so as we go through James, I want us to kind of consider that, that context of being a kingdom citizen and being concerned about what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God and how that outplays in very practical ways. 
And uh, as we've gone through James, we recognize that one of the, the main attributes of a kingdom citizen is that we be humble, right? I don't know about you, but I've, as I've sat under the teaching and preaching of the book of James, it's very humbling, right? Because we start seeing ourselves in some of these uh, points that James is making, and we, we realize that how, how powerful our flesh is and how hard it is to be humble. And we talked about this morning in, in Bible study group in James 4, 6, where he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then again in verse 10 in chapter 4, He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And we realize that our natural inclination is to exalt ourselves. Our whole uh, nature is to exalt ourselves and to put ourselves forward. And James says that's not the way. He says that we are to humble ourselves, and the Lord will exalt us in due time. And so we talked about this idea of humility and how difficult it is to to display humility in our lives. And it's not one of those things that you can just go to a a workshop and learn about humility, right? Because if there's somebody out there teaching you that like, hey, I have the corner market on humility. I'm the most humble person in this room right now. Chances are they're not, right? It's kind of a, a paradox principle. And we talked about the only way to really learn humility is by seeing other people's example and reading about Jesus's example here in the word of God. And so it's one of those things that's rather, it's caught instead of taught. And so we have to try to, uh, to integrate that into our lives by following other people's example and reading about Jesus's example all throughout scripture. Uh, one of the, the greatest examples that I can think of of humility is, is Jesus himself uh, just washing the disciples' feet. And we we discussed this this morning as well, but there's just the idea of Jesus entering into the room of disciples. And at this time, they're actually just arguing amongst themselves about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And this is a time where you think Jesus would just kind of just reprimand them right on the spot, right? Like he would just say, hey, what what are you talking about? Like, what, what what are you even doing right now? And instead of that, he takes a bowl of water and washes their feet. And he sets the example for them in that way. And they learn from his example. And he tells them, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you need to be the least among these. And so we learn that example from Jesus. And as I think about this uh, concept and character trait of humility, I think of another story uh, from a book uh, that I read called Humilitas by John Dixon. And he tells a story of uh, these three men who in the 1930s board a bus just a city bus. And for whatever reason, they decide they want to pick a fight with this gentleman sitting in the back of the bus. And so they're kind of egging him on, and they're approaching him and saying whatever they're saying to him to try to get him uh, to get in a fight with him for whatever reason. They thought this was a good idea, and he would be a guy to, to pick on for whatever reason. And so they're kind of egging this guy on, and the bus continues, and finally the bus stops, and it's time for this gentleman to get off the bus. And this gentleman stands up, and the three men realized this gentleman is a lot larger and bigger, a little more intimidating than they had realized when he was just sitting there. And the gentleman very calmly, very peacefully reaches into his pocket and he hands these gentlemen his business card. And as he exits the bus and gets off at his stop, the gentlemen kind of huddle around his business card. And the business card says, Joe Lewis, boxer. Of course, this is in the 1930s. This is before Joe Lewis's career really took off. But Joe Lewis would eventually become the heavyweight champion 
of boxing. And he would be the heavyweight champion from 1937 all the way to 1949. This man was the heavyweight champion for over a decade and just complete dominance in the sport at that time. So much so that the International Boxing Organization would hail Joe Lewis as the number one boxer of all time. Muhammad Ali was second. And so they considered Joe Lewis and his reign as heavyweight champion as, as the greatest of all time. Uh, they used to say, as, as rumors, when Joe Lewis was in his prime, that he could knock out a horse with one punch. That's how powerful his power was in his punch. And so when I think of humility, I, I think of this story, right? These three gentlemen had the very opposite of humility. To approach a guy like, like Joe Lewis and to try to pick a fight, like, what were they thinking, right? What were they thinking? And Joe Lewis had the humility to recognize that these gentlemen didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were going up against. And in humility, he simply handed them his card and walked off the bus and did not give them really what these guys really deserved. And so we recognize, just as this example, in the example of Christ washing the disciples' feet, that the kingdom of God and our citizenship in the kingdom of God is our focus is never on ourselves. It's always on others, and it's always pointed upward to what God would have us do, following what the Bible teaches and God's will for our lives. And so we realize that as we go through James, that as kingdom citizens, our focus is not on ourselves. So at this time, if you'll go ahead and stand with me as we read in James chapter 4 and verses 13 through 17. James 4, 13 through 17. Verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such in town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father God, I pray that as we open your word this morning and we look at these five verses, God, and we contemplate the meeting that... Um, you would just be present, that you would guide our, uh, this sermon, Lord, that you would speak through me, because uh, God, I don't, I don't have anything within me uh, to comment on this, Lord. It's just going to have to be through you. And so, Lord, open our eyes to what you would have us here this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we see in this introduction of this passage in verse 13, uh, James kind of comes at us hard once again, right? And so he's, he's been going at it pretty hard here, and we saw kind of some strong language in the, the previous uh, passages here in verses 1 through 12 in chapter 4, and he kind of ends chapter 4 again with some strong language here. So chapter 4, he's accusing the, his listeners of, of being adulterers and um, basically resisting, uh, you know, he's admonishing them to, to resist the devil, and he's calling them proud. And so he's going to kind of continue with that thought here when he says, uh, come now, in verse 13. And in the Greek, this is kind of like a, uh, an admonition where he's like really trying to get their attention. And he's like, come on now, listen up. What are you guys doing? And I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. 
Uh, Rosemary and I, we have two young daughters, and so we find ourselves always trying to get their attention, right? Because they have these short attention spans, and there's so many things that they have to learn, and they're always finding themselves in these situations where uh, they're doing something and they're going to get hurt. And so we kind of have to get their attention, either with clapping or or whistling or whatever, and it's kind of this, like, come on now. And so that's how James is kind of approaching here in verse 13. He's like, come on now. (laughs) Give me your attention. Listen up. And he's going to kind of criticize what they're saying here. And he says, come on now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into, into such and such in town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And so he's going to criticize them right off the bat for this statement, this statement of today or tomorrow, we will go into such a, such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And just glancing at that and just looking at that text, we may say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with saying, hey, today or tomorrow, we're going to go in such and such a town, and we're going to spend a year there and trade and make a profit? And just like in our time, in this time, this may have not sounded like such a, a wrong statement to make. Uh, in this time, in uh, the Mediterranean and also the areas around Palestine, uh, trading, make a profit, that's it's kind of the, the economy that, that worked back then. Uh, you could have a, a group of businessmen kind of gathering together, making plans that we're going to go in such and such a town, and we're going to go there, and we're going to spend this amount of time there, and we're going to trade, and we're going to make a profit. And so, uh, kind of like today, if you own a business or you're part of an organization that uh, your livelihood is based on selling products or making products, you make these kind of plans, and you, you know, kind of gather around. And so, this isn't a, a super uncommon thing to say or even to do. And so we can kind of resonate with that a little bit in our time. But James is taking some, a stance against this. And so he's going to kind of critique this verse right now. And so we need to figure out what, what is wrong with this statement. And I think what we have to keep in mind uh, in scripture and even especially in James as we go through this, but James is constantly going after the heart, right? Um, continually in his critique and in his criticism and in his, his encouragement, he's always after the heart. And even in the, the teachings of Jesus, he's always after our heart, right? It's not always the external things, it's what's the heart that matters. And so as, as we look at this uh, statement, we have to understand that James is after the heart here. And really the next group of verses here, 14 through 17, is just going to be a further explanation of what is going on in this statement here in verse 13. And so as we look at that, continue to keep that in mind, verses 14 through 17 is really just commentary on verse 13. So I'd like, if we can, we'll just fast forward to verse 16, because James is really going to summarize uh, what is going on here in verse 13, because he says in verse 16, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. So as it is, in other words, as it is in verse 13, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So again, pretty strong language coming from James here. And as we look at this verse, we wouldn't necessarily think this is a a prideful statement, an area of boasting necessarily, but this is what James is calling it. So we kind of have to figure out, let's backtrack and figure out how in the world uh, James is coming to this conclusion. Um, So let's backtrack real quick to verse 14. Uh, So he says in 13, uh, he has the statement there, and there's verse 14, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And in verse 14, uh, we see James sort of bringing in this wisdom that he is apt to do throughout his letter. He's constantly quoting from like, 
Proverbs and these uh, concepts in like Ecclesiastes. He has all this wisdom literature integrated into his letter. He has all these uh, kind of similar statements that Jesus made on the Sermon on the Mount. And again, this is another parallel passage that we find in Proverbs 27.1. In verse 14 here, it says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring. So very similar in the wording here, that today or tomorrow, or excuse me, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so James is basically saying, hey, in your planning, make sure you understand what your life is. And what does he say that life is? He says it's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Some translations may say that your life is but a vapor that appears for a little while. So if you think of a vapor, it's kind of this puff of smoke that appears for a little while. Or uh, think of it when uh, it gets cold uh, here in Jacksonville for the period of whatever it is, three to four weeks where it gets really cold here. And you go outside and you can see your breath as you breathe out. And you see this little mist that appears. And then within seconds, it's just gone, disappears. And at best, what James is even referring to here with a mist or a vapor may be even just the morning fog, right? Sometimes you wake up in the morning, go outside, and there's just fog sitting there. And even the fog doesn't last but a couple of hours, right? Eventually it lifts and it's gone. And so he compares our life here on earth as a mist and as a fog. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And so I think what James is trying to say here is that these, this group of people that's saying this thing, this statement here in verse 13, they're not considering the, the brevity of their life. They're not considering their life as, as transients. And just what we're talking about as, as members and citizens of the kingdom of God, like this earth right here, right now that we're living in, that we're experiencing, this is not our home. This is just a temporary passing place. And in fact, in 1 Peter 2, he'll call us sojourners or even exiles in this land. Like this isn't our home country. We're actually living for another country. And James is going to talk about that, how we are just kingdom citizens just passing through. We're just a vapor that appears for a moment in time and then vanishes away. I don't know about you, but that's not incredibly encouraging, (laughs) at times, to think about that, the brevity of life, to realize that uh, I'm just a vapor that's going to appear for a certain time, and uh, 50, 75 to 100 years from now, there's not very many people who are going to know who I am or who I was. Not many people who are going to remember us. If you think about just your own family, uh, maybe you had a, a moment in time that you, could, you met your great-grandparents and you spent some time with them, but chances are it wasn't a whole lot of time, and maybe you were too little to remember them at all. But that was just a couple of generations ago. So think about your own great-great-grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Will they remember you? Will they realize who you were and everything that made up your life and how you lived and all of that? And so it's important that we allow this statement to truly sink in. And it should produce in us a humility, right? It's kind of our theme this morning is this humility to recognize that the brevity of life humbles us and makes us recognize that My planning and everything that I want to do is going to be very short in comparison to what's coming next. And so that's what James, his first critique here, is that the the people who are making this statement, they're, they're not thinking about life as a mist or a fog. And we realize that the majority of our time is not going to be in this life, but it's going to be in the next life. So with that in mind... 
how then should we plan? How then should we use our time? How then should we gather together and think about life if our citizenship is in heaven? And that's when we're going to be spending the most time. There's a a great quote uh, in a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It's written by Randy Alcorn. Uh, But in this book, he says, from childhood, most of us learn to shut out our true country, to stifle over thirst for the eternal, replacing it with the pursuit of the temporal. This is how we who are created to be spiritual end up being such accomplished materialists. But when we live with eternity in view, we'll do many things differently. And those we do the same will be done with transformed perspective. Not only teaching and preaching and witnessing, but also washing dishes and pruning trees and repairing carburetors. Almost any honest activity, whether building a shed, driving a bus, or caring for a patient, can be an eternal contribution to people, an investment in God's plan. So as you consider your life this morning, and you consider your plans, how much of God's eternal plan and this eternal perspective makes its way into your planning process and decision-making? It's not natural for us to think that way, right? It's a little uncomfortable to think about the brevity of life and what life will look like after this life. For whatever reason, we, we, do, we like to shy away from that. But really, in the reality of our lives, we're only here for a short time, like a mist. And so our planning, our thoughts should be focused on the next life and not solely on this life. And so when we look at verse 13, we need to consider that the people making this statement are not focusing on the next life, but simply on this life. In Luke 12, 16 through 20, Jesus tells the parable of a rich man who uh, stores all these goods into barns. And he's making uh, all these plans to to store and everything, and he wants to just sit back and eat, drink, and be merry. Well, soon after he spends all that time storing all these things into his barn, the Lord says to him, your life is required of you right now. And all he had done was store up all this treasure in barns for this life. He did not focus on the next life. And so we need to keep that in mind, this, this concept that our citizenship is truly in the kingdom of God and that we need to focus on that citizenship um, even more so than our citizenship here on this earth. Are you invested in God's plan? In humility, we must recognize our identity as transients in this world. So let's go on. Let's see what else James has to say here in verse 15. He says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So James brings up another important thing that we maybe not considered here in verse 13. But if you read verse 13, I think what you'll notice there is that there's no mention of God in verse 13. Like the people making these plans, uh, the businessmen or whoever they were, the merchants, uh, there's, there's no mention of God in this whole verse. And that's not necessarily wrong. Like we can read the whole book of Esther in the Old Testament and realize that God is not mentioned throughout that entire book. Yet when we read Esther, we can't help but notice that God's sovereignty and his plan is all over the pages of the book of Esther. They're constantly seeking God and they're praying and they're calling out to him to come through and to protect them. But we don't get that sentiment very much here in verse 13, do we? 
God is absent in these plans. He's not mentioned at all. They're not seeking his will to be done. In the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus tells us to seek the will of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't see that there in verse 13. So James says in, in 15, instead, so in contrast to verse 13, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And just to clarify on this as well, uh, the statement, if the Lord wills, isn't like a magic formula to kind of make our plans in alignment with God's will. So don't, don't just make plans and say, well, if the Lord's will, you know, we'll be able to do that, that and this. Uh, again, remember, James is after the heart of the issue. And so we don't always have to say like, hey, you know, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go to lunch after church. If the Lord wills, I'm going to finish this sermon if the Lord wills, we'll talk about verse 17 eventually. Uh, we don't always have to talk like that. It's not, it's not the actual words. It's the heart of the issue that he's getting at. And so if the Lord is not involved in these plans in verse 13, uh, then these, it's just a, a wrong sentiment. It's a, it's a wrong way to think and to act as a kingdom citizen and to um, display our works in a broken world and to live out our faith. If God is not mentioned, it's, it's investing in the temporal instead of investing in the eternal. And so when we think about the will of God, it's not a magic formula that we just quote to kind of uh, make our plans what we think they should be or try to get God to recognize them or try to uh, kind of passively make our plans right in God's eyes. But it's really focusing intentionally on seeking out the will of God. And when we talk about the will of God, we can go down a whole rabbit hole of uh, thought and theological debate and everything about how to decipher the will of God. And a lot of times we think about the will of God and how uh, obtuse that it is and hard to really really grasp what that is for our lives because there's not a whole lot of uh, specific things like who am I supposed to marry, where am I supposed to work, uh, all these different things. Uh, but if we just kind of simplify that a little bit, because I think that's what James does a little bit in this passage, and I, I think so for a couple of reasons, verse 17, uh, namely among them, but we really want to find out what the will of God is for us. We need to look in the Bible, okay? This is God's revealed will to us. And if we want to know how the will of God applies to our lives, we need to start trying to apply the word of God into our planning, into our decision-making. When was the last time you had a big decision to make, and the first thing you went to was the word of God? Or when was the last time you had a big decision to make, and the last person you, you sought was uh, a counsel from a godly brother or sister? I mean, you can look around this, this worship uh, service this morning and, and see your brothers and sisters in Christ and how they can speak truth and wisdom into your life based on what they've learned and their experiences and seeking out the will of God. And this is kind of how we, we put practical uh, footprints to this, this concept of finding the will of God. And so if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And so this is how we search uh, the heart of God. Romans 12 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so this renewal of the mind is what the word of God does, right? It changes our thinking, the way we process information. It changes the way we live our lives through uh, making decisions and 
It changes our heart, ultimately. The truth sinks down deep into our hearts, and it, and it, and it motivates us to make godly decisions, to remind us that of our citizenship in heaven, and not just our citizenship here in this present time that's just a mist and just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. But when we think about this, we can ask ourselves, and if we really examine our heart, what happens when we just can't bring ourselves to do the will of God? What happens when we kind of figure out what the will of God is for our life, and we read the Bible, and we hear the teaching, we hear the preaching, uh, week in and week out, we go to the Bible studies, but we just can't seem to, to do that on a regular basis in our lives. And perhaps that is what the issue is in verse 13. Perhaps you have a group of, of men and, and women, and they're, they're gathered around, and they're saying, today or tomorrow we go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade to make a profit. Perhaps they, they know what the will of God is, but they just can't seem uh, to put it into practice um, in their lives. And I think we have to fight a certain temptation. And this temptation, I, I think, is applicable to this weekend as we consider our freedom here as United States citizens, and we have that time to celebrate and to understand what true freedom really is. And I think our culture is constantly sending us messages about what freedom really is. And a lot of times their definition of freedom is not truly freedom at all. A lot of times the culture's definition of freedom is actually autonomy. And there's a difference between autonomy and freedom. Autonomy is the right or condition of self-government. Freedom can be defined as the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. And so a lot of times we look at the definition of freedom and we, we think autonomy. And when we think autonomy, we think of the, the absence of, of any type of control over our lives. And, and we think about the, the right or condition of self-government. But I think James kind of knocks that um, that thought and that type of philosophy when he says your life is but a mist, right? It's this idea that our, our life, what is your life? It's, it's just a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes away. We have no self-government over our life. That's just a myth. And the constant message of culture is to do what you want to do, fulfill the desires that are in your heart, seek out your own path, do what you feel like is best in the moment, and kind of this, this promotion of self-identity and individualism. And we, we think that's truly freedom, but actually it's autonomy. And autonomy is just a myth, because we know here in this passage that our life is just a mist. And if our life is just a mist, then there must be a greater power in the world that has control over us, and that we as Christians submit to, and even non-Christians will have to submit to one day, and so that's why James says in verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. It's this recognition that the will of God sovereignly reigns over everything in this world. That we don't have autonomy. We don't have control over ourselves. And actually the paradox of it is when we embrace this sort of idea of autonomy and we go down that path and we try to fulfill self and we try to run our own lives with the absence of God intervening in our lives, we actually go down into a path of more bondage and more slavery than we even thought we had in the first place. And so autonomy is a myth. And I think as Christians, we can kind of get confused sometimes by our culture when we think that uh, freedom is somehow outside of the will of God. And I love that Pastor Wesley brought this up this morning and we sang that last song talking about the freedom that we have in Christ because that is freedom, right? Freedom is the absence uh, of being imprisoned or enslaved. 
It's the very absence of enslavement. Autonomy says you rule yourself, but you actually go further and further into slavery. Freedom is brought through the gospel and is brought through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can set us free. And so we lean into the will of God and not away from the will of God. Just like James said earlier in chapter 4, where he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When we lean into God, he will come close to us. And the closer we are to God, the more freedom that we will experience. We have the freedom of self-control. Because everything that the Bible says is that the self is dark, right? We cannot fulfill the desires of our own heart. We need the Lord to guide us in that in that way. And so what James is kind of talking about here is this, this dark and, and deep heart issue that we're constantly trying to, to wander away from the will of God. We're prone to wander. And so the natural inclination of our hearts is to, to wander away from the will of God. And so that may have been the incident or the, the, the thought line of, of verse 13 here, where they're making plans for themselves and maybe they're deceived. Maybe they thought they could go and, and make money for a year or so and, and to gather all these belongings and, and whatever their plans were that were absent of God. And they were trying to fulfill this desire within their heart that was uh, opposite of what God would want for them. So at the end of the day, we have to realize that autonomy, this feeling, this inclination of our hearts, at the end of the day, it's, it's pride. Because in pride... We're constantly focusing on ourselves instead of focusing on God. And when we focus on God, he changes our hearts and he gives us his heart and his eyes and we see things differently. We view people differently. We're, we, we think less of ourselves and more about other people. Right? We've heard the definition of humility. It may have been C.S. Lewis, but he said, humility is not thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of others more. Um, or thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That's it. (laughs) Um, And so we realize that humility is necessary as we seek the will of God. And so in humility, seek and obey God's will through his word. And so as we look at verse 16, we see James says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So thinking about this boasting, this this constant seeking of approval, this constant indulgence of self and trying to be autonomous, separate from the will of God, at the end of the day, it's just boasting. And James equates that boasting with evil. And this word here, evil, in verse 16, uh, the kind of the root word of it is is actually uh, this painful labor. So uh, the root word is this, this pain. So it's this feeling of pain. Um, and so when you think of painful labor, I, I kind of think of slavery, right? Um, this, this, this idea of constant slave labor, uh, constantly going after uh, things that are not fulfilling. And we, you feel this just pain where you, you're seeking after something that you think can fulfill you, but it ultimately cannot. And so th- that's like what we do when we, we seek to fulfill ourselves instead of the will of God. And so our freedom is found in the gospel. It's what James kind of refers to in 125 and in 212 and 28 in, in this letter. He says uh, it's the law of liberty. 
And think about that phrase, law of liberty. It sounds paradoxical, right? We think of law, you don't necessarily think of liberty. You think of, you know, control and that sort of thing. But really, the law of liberty is the gospel. It's the freedom of living under control of the will of God. So when we submit ourselves to, to God, we actually have far more freedom than we ever thought that we had. We have the freedom to live out this law of liberty. And this law of liberty is the gospel played out in real life. It's the Sermon on the Mount. When we submit to the law of liberty, we have freedom to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have freedom from these feelings of self and sin that so easily uh, trip us up. And we have the freedom to, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to, uh, to love our enemies. We have the freedom uh, to, to use our words to build up. And we have this freedom to do that outside of the slavery of our flesh. Look at the life of Jesus. He was constantly seeking to do the will of his father. Jesus, who was equal with his father, and yet he submitted to his father's will as his role was in the Trinity. And he says in Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he says in John five thirty, he says, I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus. He could do everything, right? He's the son of God. He's sovereign, supernatural, but he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus, in humility, submitted to the will of God. In John eight thirty six, says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is, is that in Jesus, we are able to submit to the Father. And just like Jesus, we can say, not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the gospel motivates us to do that. And so on Wednesday nights, we've been uh, talking about this idea of the, the gospel-centered life. And the gospel is not just the starting place of Christianity, but we keep coming back to the gospel because it's the gospel that motivates us to live life and it keeps us on track. It keeps us in line with the will of God. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel unless we fall into uh, a trap of legalism or we fall into the trap of license. We need to stay on track with the gospel. And the gospel is Jesus dying in our place, right? He paid the penalty for us. It keeps us humble to know that without Jesus, we would have nothing. But with Jesus, we have everything. It's not of our own doing. It's everything that the Father has given us through Jesus. On Wednesday night, we have have the book, The Gospel Center Life, and I've been sort of flipping through it and just, just reading it, and I kind of went a little ahead of the material, but I found this illustration that I thought kind of um, explained this principle pretty well. Uh, the author of, of the book tells this story about how he was trying to minister to his neighbor, and he was trying to, to share the gospel and build a relationship and everything that, that we would try to do in our time and uh, try to do in our lives, and uh, he was struggling with this because he couldn't find any common ground with his neighbor. Uh, his neighbor was sort of... Uh, uh, kind of grouchy and difficult to reach out to. I don't know if you've ever had a neighbor like that, but, um, you know, it's difficult, right? It's difficult to minister sometimes to people. And so he kind of gave up. And yet when he gave up, he started feeling guilty, of course, uh, that he wasn't reaching out to his neighbor. And so he kept having these, these feelings of like, oh, I'm not doing enough, and, you know, but I can't bring myself to do this. Yet he knew what the will of God was for his life, and that was to minister to his neighbor. And so he had to, he had to continue to quote 
uh, Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that while we were difficult to be in a relationship with, while we were difficult to minister to, Jesus still ministered to us and extended his grace to us in our darkest and deepest moments. And so as he reminded himself of this truth, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, he had the motivation to do the will of God, and that was to minister to his neighbor. And the gospel became the catalyst for him to do that. And so the gospel sets us free, sets us free from the trap of guilt, and it gives us the freedom to do the will of God. And so run to the gospel, rehearse the gospel in your mind, and keep that at the center of your life. So in humility, seek and obey God's will through his word. As we seek his word, let it soak into your hearts. Let it set you free from the bondage of self so that you can live out the life that he has for you, seeking his purposes, his plan for your life. And that way your life is not wasted here during the mist, the vapory time that we have here together. Verse 17, James closes this passage and he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So this is kind of James's theology in one sentence, right? Because all throughout this, James has this kind of thesis statement of, of his letter, of this book, that faith without works is dead. And so we, because we are Christians, we have the ability to do the right thing, to know the will of God, and to act upon that. And if we're not acting upon that, then our faith may not be genuine to begin with. And so verse 17 kind of illustrates that point. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him... It is sin. So this idea that avoiding sin is one thing, but we also need to do the things we know we should be doing. And that, that's acting out the will of God. Once we find the will of God for us in his word, that we should be doing those things. And if we're not motivated to do those things, then we need to rehearse the gospel to ourselves until we find the encouragement and the nourishment that we need from the will of God and the word of God to do those things. When I was in the army, uh, occasionally I had to go for, for leadership training. And so to make uh, E5 and be a non-commissioned officer in E6, uh, we had to do this training. And uh, the army's leadership philosophy uh, back then was kind of summarized in one slogan. And it was be, know, do. So three words, be, know, and do. And so the B was kind of like encompassing all of the army values. So the army has a list of seven values that they uh, deem appropriate to serve in the military and to be in leadership. And so basically you need to be all of those character traits. And then there's the know. Uh, when you know everything that you need to know that's in your field manual and all the army regulations surrounding what you need to know to practice you know, what the army would have you do in your current context and your unit or whatever unit that you're serving in, it's the knowledge and skills and the technical information that you need. And then the do, be, know, do, is a combination of being and knowing. So being is kind of the inner character. The knowing, if we use kind of that formula, we can use that in the Christian life as well. So our be is kind of our identity, our identity in Christ. We are to remind ourselves who we are in Christ, not necessarily what we see when we look in the mirror, because we may come to a lot of different conclusions, but we need to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and what the gospel tells us that we are in Christ. And so we be who we are. 
who we know to be, who God has identified us as being. And then we need to know. We need to know what the will of God is. Once we identified who we are, we need to know what God would have us do. And he reveals that in his word. And so we go back to his word and we study it and we we consider what God would have us do in any situation. And uh, we realize that uh, as our identity, as as, uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, it it gives us this uh, ability to to know what we're supposed to do and then also uh, to follow through with that. And so the doing is basically the outflow of our identity and the will of God. And what we have when when we do... And we don't just avoid things, but we actually do the things that God has wanted us to do. We see the kingdom of God come to life here in this temporary world. We're able to love people as Jesus loves. We're able to serve people as Jesus served them. We're able to do the hard things. We're able to pray for people that are not like us. We're able to to hold our tongues when in reality, everything within the fiber of our flesh, we want to lash out and say something in anger or frustration. We're able to do these things because of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And when we understand our identity and we understand the will of God for us as revealed through his word, we can do the things that previously we couldn't do through the power of the Holy Spirit. And through that, it changes things around us. People start coming to Christ People see the love that is within us. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago, but how will people know that we are the disciples of Jesus? By the love that we have for one another. And so it's through this identity, understanding how much we are loved through the gospel, understanding that what we're supposed to do in light of that, and then going forward and pushing back the darkness. That's been our theme, right? Just pushing back the darkness in our neighborhoods, in this community around us, and doing the will of God. So don't just avoid sin, although that is important, and cultivate holiness, but pursue pursue God's will and then follow through with it. It's being, knowing, and doing. So in humility, do what you know is right. Um, As we close, I'd like to just throw out some questions for consideration or application questions. Uh, When we do our Bible study groups, we usually kind of close with some questions, and uh, we usually talk about that uh, during the the time. But uh, just some things to consider as you ponder on this text. Uh, How much do you consider God in your planning? Whether that's your retirement planning, whether that's job planning, whether that's uh, whatever decision that you're making, your decision-making process, how much control does God have over that? And do you consider anyone else in your planning? Your family members? How much input does the local church have in your planning? Your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you ever seek their counsel? Do you ask them for any wise advice to speak truth into your life? And is there anything in your life right now that you know is right and that needs to be done that you are maybe avoiding? So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Doing the will of God. If there's something that we're avoiding, something that we know the right thing to do, but we can't seem to bring ourselves to do it, my encouragement to you this morning is rehearse the gospel in your mind. Realize how much Christ came after you and use that motivation to do what you know is right.
and to live out your faith as a kingdom citizen in this world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word uh, this morning. Thank you for the truth that we have uh, within its pages. Thank you for giving us salvation and for giving us true freedom. And God, so often what we want in our lives, we want to fulfill these desires in our heart, but really they're selfish desires. What our heart desires is actually autonomy. What we really need is freedom. And true freedom only comes through you. True freedom is only found at the cross, Father. Help us to understand that principle and to pursue that on a daily basis. To pursue you. Help us to meditate upon the gospel and the truth that's found within. That for our sake, you became sin, even though you didn't know any sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That you took our place on the cross, Jesus. And Lord, as we live our lives, may we realize that our life here is just a vapor. So short, God. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't even know what's going to happen later today. So God, may we use that as motivation for seeking your will. May we invest in the next life, not so much in this life. May we not get distracted. And Father, may we do what we know is right. Lord, may we cultivate holiness, but then we also exercise our faith in works. Lord, we're asking you to guide us in that process, help us and lead us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.